This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 89 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Each year, security firm Nopsec publishes their annual State of Vulnerability Risk Management Report, analyzing all of the vulnerabilities listed in the National Vulnerability Database, the NVD, along with those uploaded to their own platform by their clients. They consider a number of factors, including CVSS score, description, type, and vendor affected, to see which factors contribute to vulnerabilities being incorporated into malware and exploited in the wild. For this year's report, Nopsec invited Recorded Future to contribute their unique insights into how geopolitics affect government-run vulnerability databases. Joining us today to take us through the research are Sanya Nadish, a data scientist at Nopsec, and Adrian Sanabria, VP of Strategy and Product Marketing at Nopsec. Stay with us. State of the Vulnerability Risk Management is NOPSEC's annual report where we analyze recent and historical vulnerability data, and we do this every year. Uh, The idea is to discover trends that may be useful for those working in vulnerability remediation. And every year we bring on a uh, partner, and this year it was uh, Recorded Future. You know, so that adds a nice touch to the report. You know, it's not just NOPSEC saying these things. You know, we find someone else to partner with to add a little bit to whatever the topic is. What did Recorded Future bring to the table in this case? You know, I think uh, context, you know, is, is, is a good thing to have. Like, we've got all this data and we're analyzing the data, you know, but it's, it's really good to have some examples, you know, some stuff from the real world, you know, and I, th- I think that's really what they brought into this. Some re- really interesting uh, view into stuff that's actually going on out there, you know, how some of what we're describing here by looking at this data is uh, relevant in the real world. So let's dig in uh, before we get into some of the specific information. Um, let's just start with an overview here. I mean, what did 2018 look like compared to previous years? So we've found that recently there has been an increase in the number of vulnerabilities published in the National Vulnerability Database. And that, for example, 2017 had twice the number of vulnerabilities published relative to 2016. And now in 2018, we are also seeing uh, vulnerabilities being discovered and published at about the same rate. So we are getting around 40 new vulnerabilities each day. Uh, which is a lot of vulnerabilities to deal with. We are seeing some of the uh, same old problems, the same types of vulnerabilities we've had before. Let's dig in here some. Um, I mean, the the report uh, starts off by sort of describing what the national vulnerability databases are and uh, taking us through a narrative of how they vary from country to country. Right. That was actually the recorded future contribution to this report. Uh, They uh, basically warn us that exposure and risk uh, may vary dependent on where you live. Um, It is not something we commonly think about, but it turns out that um, ransomware and malware can be run differently dependent on user location or even on the keyboard layout on the computer you're using. They uh, talk about the uh, vulnerability databases also being different in the United States versus uh, China and Russia. And they also show that there are uh, 
the delays in vulnerability reporting are different between the different databases. So uh, they find that the United States National Vulnerability Database, NVD, uh, usually lags around 27 days between the initial vulnerability reporting and the publishment of the vulnerability in the NVD, while as in China, this delay is only around 12 days. Um, on the other hand, Russia seems to be taking much longer. But the interesting thing is the exposure and risk may actually vary dependent on where you live. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting point. I mean, it's almost tongue in cheek, this notion that uh, the best protection against malware might be having a Cyrillic keyboard. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, even though it sounds funny. (laughs) Take us through why would that be? Right. So they give some examples of ransomware and malware, such as the Sigran ransomware uh, that was specifically disabled to run on computers that have um, Russian uh, keyboard layout. Uh, One possible reason is that uh, criminals face uh, more risk and harsher sentences when operating in Russian IP space. So some ransomware uh, or malware um, makers, hackers have have even gone as far as to provide the uh, decryption codes to victims who have uh, such keyboards and who can prove that they're Russian. So this isn't a matter of them being uh, kinder to their uh, their countrymen. This is a case of, uh, of perhaps there being stricter law enforcement, uh, and I guess it would be easier to track them down if they're local. Right. I believe that's what Recorded Futures take on this was. Yeah, and I've, I've, I've heard that said, too, that they take a much more lenient stance uh, against uh, hacking activities towards other countries, you know, just as long as you're not targeting the homeland. Well, let's dive in here. Uh, one of the sections that looks at the overall vulnerability landscape. Uh, what did we find here? So the overall vulnerability landscape, we are seeing about 8,000 new vulnerabilities being discovered each month since the beginning of 2017, which amounts to about 40 vulnerabilities per day. Some of the reasons for this could be that there are uh, many more vulnerable devices nowadays. It could also be that NVD is getting uh, faster at publishing uh, vulnerabilities and that they're dealing with the backlogs more. So some of the vulnerabilities we saw published in 2017 had CVE years dating to previous years. In fact, around 26% of them did. And so far in 2018, around 30% of the vulnerabilities published uh, can actually be attributed to previous years. So um, we are seeing a trend of increasing number of vulnerabilities being published. In terms of vulnerability types, uh, we are seeing that about 70% of all vulnerabilities published since the beginning of 2017 fall into just 10 uh, CWE categories. And there are very few surprises here. Um, This list includes um, buffer overflows, cross-site scripting, uh, SQL injections, lack of input validation, and so on. Uh, We looked at all of these vulnerabilities in terms of their uh, CVSS core, uh, in terms of uh, the vendors and products that they affect, and also in terms of their descriptions. And we try to see if these attributes correlate at all with uh, their use in exploit code um, and in malware and uh, targeted attacks. Yeah, so really seeing the, the usual suspects when it comes to the types of, of things you would expect to see here. Um, one of the things you point out here that's interesting is uh, you pointed out that 38% of all CVEs are marked as high severity but only 2% have reached the most dangerous state of being used in malicious code and commoditized in exploit kits. 
Uh, can you sort of uh, take us through, unpack that uh, those statistics for us? Uh, sure. So what we uh, find is that there are a lot of vulnerabilities being discovered and published, but only a very small portion of them are actually dangerous in the sense that they have been weaponized, uh, used in malware, ransomware, trojans, um, and exploit kits, and used in targeted attacks. And we find that uh, from our threat intelligence sources, we find that this uh, portion is about 2% of all vulnerabilities so far. While as CVSS, the Common Vulnerability Scoring System base score, would tell us that 38% of all vulnerabilities are high or critical. So what this means in practice when coming to uh, remediation is that if you remediate based on CVSS and you say you're going to patch all the high and critical vulnerabilities, you will be looking at uh, many more vulnerabilities than, than you really need to look at. So uh, it is 38 versus 2%. Uh, we also find that uh, about a quarter of all vulnerabilities have some sort of exploit code written for them. So in places like Exploit Database, but that this is also not sufficient to predict whether they will be used in malware or targeted attacks. There is a big discrepancy between the number of vulnerabilities that have some sort of proof of concept exploit code versus those that are actually used in targeted attacks. Now, is there any sort of correlation of, of the types of vulnerabilities that most often get turned into malware? This is uh, why we looked at other uh, attributes besides the CVSS. So we found that certain uh, vendors, for example, and certain products, vulnerabilities related to those vendors and products are more likely to be used in malware and targeted attacks. Hmm. Uh, we also found that certain descriptions can be indicative of uh, these vulnerabilities being weaponized. Yeah, it's interesting. You you did some uh, natural language processing uh, in here to sort of uh, take apart these descriptions. Can you I mean, take us through what was that process like and what did you discover? Right. So we looked at the descriptions of all the historical vulnerabilities so far uh, to see if the language used in descriptions can be used uh, to predict whether a vulnerability say a newly released vulnerability will be used in malware targeted attacks. What we found is that overall, as I mentioned, it's under 2% that get weaponized. But if you focus on certain descriptions, this percentage uh, gets much higher. So vulnerabilities that have certain words or combinations of words are more likely to be targeted. For example, vulnerabilities that have Server 2008 or Microsoft Windows or Internet Explorer or Adobe Flash in their description are uh, between uh, four to five times more likely to be targeted than a randomly chosen vulnerability. We also looked at combinations of more than two words in the descriptions. So we find the vulnerabilities that involve remote attackers executing arbitrary code are much more likely to be used in targeted attacks. So we think that incorporating descriptions as a factor when determining the score, the risk of the vulnerability is important. Hmm. I guess I'm trying to, to understand what the cause and effect is here. When you're, when you're looking at the words and the frequency of words, is it that the bad guys are looking for these words to decide what they want to exploit? Or is it that uh, the stuff they're exploiting happens to have these words? Yeah, I, I think they actually work from it backwards from how we do it. Forget the guy's name, but a guy working at Microsoft wrote a, uh, a blog post once said, uh, defenders think in lists and attackers think in graphs. 
basically what he's saying is that, uh, you, you know, our perspectives are different and we kind of have to shift those and, and look at things from the attacker's point of view. They're looking for something, you know, they, they, they have some, you know, it's like looking for a house. You know, they know exactly what they're looking for. They have criteria, you know, to, based on what they want to attack. You know, they're looking for bang for their buck. So something that's uh, uh, going to be very common, you know, so Windows Server 2008, very, very common uh, server, you know, tends to have a lot of security vulnerabilities and sometimes people don't patch them, you know, so that's that's a juicy target for them. And uh, we haven't done as good a job codifying what looks attractive to the attacker. The way we came at the scoring system doesn't really take that into account. One of those is, is revealed in that word analysis. Uh, the fact that remote code execution is very attractive because in most of these cases, you know, they don't want to just attack servers or, or take them down. They want to control them. They want to use them to pivot to other high value systems. And for that, you have to understand what the vulnerability does, you know, and, and what the attack vector is. So, and, and this is one of my frustrations is you can have something that's at, has the highest score and it gives you remote code execution. And you can also have another thing that's at the highest CVSS score, uh, but the impact is denial of service. In other words, it, it makes a piece of software crash. Uh, the outcome is very different, as different as can be. You know, be, being able to execute code and just making something fall over are, are very different outcomes. And, and maybe both are useful to attackers in different cases. But the fact that we don't distinguish between them with that score or even outside that score, that we have to look at the description uh, to, to glean those details, I, I think is a, uh, is a problem with this uh, system. But there's also aspects of CVSS that uh, they can't score for us. There's the temporal score and the environmental score, which have to be filled out by uh, whoever's using CVSS, you know, so the, the enterprise or the business uh, or who, whoever's scoring these vulnerabilities. And it's not really something they're ever going to have time to do, you know, mm -hmm. to go through. And like if we're using the system right, companies are going through and putting an importance value, some kind of value on every single asset they have and custom scoring every single vulnerability they have. You know, the, these are millions in some cases. It's just not going to happen. Now, one of the things you did in the report is you went through uh, your own client data at NOPSEC. And, and so what did that uh, dive reveal to you? So what we found with our client data was uh, very similar to the overall trends, except that the inadequacy of the CVSS score was, um, I'd say, emphasized because it turns out that our clients are uh, having more than half of their vulnerabilities being ranked as um, high severity based on CVSS. We also saw around uh, 93, I believe, uh, unique uh, vulnerabilities per asset for our clients in the financial industry. And if you multiply that by the number of assets that a financial organization may have, uh, you get a very large number. We have also seen scans that had more than 300,000 unique vulnerabilities. In terms of the um, vulnerabilities we saw in our client scans, uh, we found around uh, 10 to 11,000 different CVEs just over the uh, last year alone. 
In terms of the vulnerable vendors, we were seeing the same uh, players we see overall. So uh, the number one uh, source of vulnerabilities was Microsoft, but this varied dependent on the industry sector. You listed the top 20 uh, CVEs, but one of the interesting things uh, was sort of the distribution of the types of vulnerabilities within those. Take me through that. One of the interesting things about the uh, the top 20 is that only about half of them are things that you can patch. You know, so traditionally when we think of vulnerabilities, like earlier I was talking about exploits. I mean, that, that, that's a particular kind of vulnerability. You know, it's a software bug. But vulnerabilities can also be uh, logical errors. Uh, they can be things like default credentials. Like if you've got a default username and password on something, uh, people are going to take advantage of that. Or if you configure something incorrectly, if you think it's only available uh, to your internal corporate network, but you mistakenly uh, you, know, you set up a firewall rule where it's exposed to the outside and Maybe it's a service that doesn't even require credentials to get access to it. We see this often with different services, like one, one in particular is Redis, which is a, uh, a type of database that by default has no credentials. You can just connect to it, look at all the data. I think it's interesting that, that when we look at that top bit, you know, everyone associates, oh, I need to uh, patch more quickly, uh, you know, and, and that's going to solve a lot of this problem. Uh, from what we've seen, that's only going to solve half of your problem. One of the things you touch on here in the report is uh, the use of machine learning when you're uh, calculating these things. Your your risk scoring algorithms are, are making use of machine learning. Uh, what's what's going on there? Why is that an important tool? So we approached the risk scoring problem as a supervised machine learning problem. Uh, we are trying to predict the probability that a particular vulnerability will be used in targeted attacks in the wild or that there will be highly weaponized exploit kits and malware making use of it. We basically uh, try to use uh, historical data. So we have a set of past vulnerabilities along with their features and we use machine learning to um, find the best uh, possible model that maps these vulnerabilities to their uh, labels, labels here being whether they have been used in malware or not. So it's an automated way to find uh, the best relationship between features or attributes of vulnerabilities that are likely to lead to a vulnerability being dangerous. We basically um, use CVSS core in addition with additional vulnerability information from many threat feeds and social media to obtain that, uh, that probability of a vulnerability being used in, uh, in real-world attacks. I think a big part of Sonia's job you know, that a lot of people don't think about is when you talk about AI and machine learning, you think about something that you just set and forget. You, know, you set this up and this machine is just happily churning along, like learning, getting smarter, uh, solving all the problems. But you know, our data is never pristine. It's never 100% when you bring it in, like the threat intelligence we bring in, the exploit data. Uh, so Sonia is constantly asking us questions, you know, and, and we're working together to, to try and determine what's the quality of this data? You know, what bits and pieces in this data could throw off the model? Are we weighting things the correct way? Or, you know, is there anything else we can put in there that would help? And like an example of that, uh, I actually did a webinar yesterday, and, and in preparation for this, 
Uh, this is actually the first time I've done the experiment, experiment, but I decided to tweet out the name of a C- or the number of a CVE, you know, like 2012-0002, I think it was, uh, with the word malware in that same tweet. And sure enough, we look at some threat intel out there. And uh, the fact that I did that ended up in the threat intel, associated it more with malware than it was before. So the fact that this is fallible, you know, th- this approach is something that people can mess with. They can uh, falsify maybe. You have to take that into account. You have to actually take some of these and dive into it. Um, a good example of that is when, you know, Sonya's model predicts that a vulnerability is going to be used by malware in the future, we look at when that fails. It's not 100% correct. We go back and we look at those, we look at that list, and we think, okay, why, why is, did this not happen? Did the attackers just have enough, you know, they, they just didn't need to use these because they already had good exploits available to put into their, their malware? Or did we miss something? You know, can we make the model better? So one of the things that uh, the report noticed was uh, that year over year, sometimes uh, the malware associated with certain vendors changes. What we have noticed is that the big vendors, like the big five, like Microsoft, Google, Oracle, um, IBM, Apple, all tend to have a lot of vulnerabilities. And this has stayed consistent over the years. On the other hand, uh, we found that in terms of uh, association with malware and exploit rates for vulnerabilities, there has been more change. And that just because a vendor has a lot of vulnerabilities does not necessarily mean that those are very dangerous. So for example, Microsoft, you will see in the top five in terms of the malware and exploit kit rates as well. But the other four I've mentioned are not in the top five or top 10 list. So Some vendors have a lot of vulnerabilities. Others have a lot of very dangerous vulnerabilities. And interestingly, they're they're Linux. You know, a lot of them are Linux. Canonical is is on the top. It's associated with that they make Ubuntu, which a lot of people use. Red Hat's there. We just got uh, just bought by IBM, uh, Debian. Uh, So yeah, it's not what you would uh, think. Which is uh, you know, this is one of the more interesting insights that I think came out of this year's research. Looking at at everything you gathered up for this year's report, um, what are the conclusions? What are the take-homes this year? I would say that one of the main takeaways is that CVSS is not sufficient to quantify risk of vulnerability poses and that there are factors that are as important or more important. Uh, We um, incorporate a lot of additional information about vulnerabilities and we use uh, machine learning to prioritize the remediation of vulnerabilities that are likely to be exploited in the wild since we have found that only a small fraction of vulnerabilities have functional exploits and even fewer are exploited in the wild. So our uh, risk score comes from a model that's trained to predict which vulnerabilities will be used in in attacks. And uh, we find that by adding information from additional threat feeds and social media, information about vendors, information from natural language processing on the um, descriptions, uh, we we can prioritize better. So we can uh, predict which vulnerabilities will be used in targeted attacks better than CVSS can, both in terms of false positives and false negatives. 
Yeah, interesting. Uh, Adrian, how about you? I mean, I, I tend to be a big picture kind of guy. So, I, you know, I'm already thinking about next year's report and, and where we want to go with this. And uh, in our research, too, because this is all based off of research that's going on all year long. We don't just do this uh, just for the report. To me, the big thing is, um, you know, how can we get ahead of this? You know, because in previous reports that we've done, we've shown that oftentimes the bad guys are using these things before the patch is even available. You know, sometimes before people even know about it, you know, their vulnerability isn't even public. You know, so there's no amount of going faster or automating the remediation process that's going to save you in those cases. Can we take this prediction to the point to where we, we can say, well, and I'd say there's some obvious choices already, you know, like we, we touched on Microsoft and Adobe Flash and things like that. You know, we can already say, yeah, there's probably going to be another bug. It's going to be bad. And we should mitigate against that. And the mitigation is uh, Adobe's killing Flash entirely. Like, it, th that's been such a big problem. But for others, can we predict, okay, this is such a big risk. Uh, we need to have some kind of mitigation in place that will stop attacks uh, or at least frustrate them, uh, make them move on to something else before the vulnerability is even found. Our thanks to Sonia Nadish and Adrian Sinabria from Nopsec for joining us. The report is NOPSEC's annual State of Vulnerability Risk Management Report. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. <laughs>